Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports professor Rick Harrow inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. Huge weekend in the NFL and clearly the premiership soccer all over the world. Believe it or not, hockey and basketball getting ready to go have a special event celebrating the 50 years of the sports business and the re-release of the sport business handbook. The book is Insights from 100 Plus Leaders Who Shaped the Future and Shaped the 50 Years of the Industry. Lucky enough to managing edit and have a major event with Gary Bettman and Zach Leonsis and Bob Dupay speaking. We'll hear more about that next week, but certainly we celebrate 50 years of the recognition of the sports business. Thanks to all of you who've made it possible as well. So let's look at deal-making issues this week. Three to one. Three. Minister orders investigation of the French Soccer Federation. The French sports magazine published a six-page investigation, quoting comments from anonymous sources and former and current employees, talking about inappropriate conduct by French organization. And the Francis sports minister ordered an investigation into the French Football Federation imperative that the FFF continues its activities with absolute respect for all employees, regardless of their hierarchical position. I think this controversy is just beginning. Two. The Bucks become the latest NBA team to launch AI chats for fans with Game On technology. They're partnering to build a new chat application for the website and mobile app, expected launch at the beginning of the upcoming NBA season. Bucks will join other NBA teams, such as the Hawks, and Sixers to offer game on chatbots for providing automated answers to fan questions via text. Fans will be able to use the Bucks chat function for guest support related to experiences within Fiserv Forum and Deer District, including information related to ticketing and merchandise. The Bucklets by Bucks, by the way, have quickly become one of the most popular teams in the U.S. thanks to the Greek freak, and it proves again you don't have to be a big market team to be a successful team. One. Sports and entertainment technology partner Delta named Steve Pagliuca as chairman of the board. He's now the chairman of the board. The sports-centric streaming and video company has a new leader. The appointment follows the June 22 acquisition by Bain Capital and Nextel SKR. Pagliuca co-chair of Bain. Uh, Andrea Marini remains D, the CEO of the acquired company. Companies at the forefront of transformational shift in how consumers engage with content, its investments across video streaming, fan data, broadcast technology, positioned it well to capture new markets, obviously a big deal. Deal-making issue number one. Before we get to our guest, Dick Cass, the former president of the Baltimore Ravens and current executive, Let's look at the three games to watch from the lens of the sports business. Callie Kazire and I continue to collaborate on this. Let's start with college. Number one is number 20th ranked Florida at number 11th ranked Tennessee this next week. 
Gators travel to Knoxville to take on surging Tennessee, made waves on and off the field. The Volunteers have been at the forefront of capitalizing on NIL, led by their NIL collective, the Spire Sports Group, created in September of 2020. Collective made headlines after it was reported an anonymous 2023 five-star recruit received an $8 million deal from a collective, and many believe the recruit is the 23 five-star recruit quarterback who committed to Tennessee days after the report came out. This has led some people for calling for regulations, as recruiting may be trending essentially toward pay-to-win rather than fair competition, some say. Spire Group competing with the likes of Florida NIL Collectives, Gator Guard, and Gator Collective to bring top recruits to their schools. This matchup, not only a crucial game for the SEC for the 3-0 11th-ranked Vols and the 2-1 20th-ranked Gators, but also a highly competitive matchup between the respective collective groups that are both pushing the boundaries on how lucrative NIL can be. Then number 10, Arkansas, and 23, Texas A&M. Razorbacks go to College Station to take on SEC rival 23rd-ranked Texas A&M. Arkansas invested in their head coach for good reason. Sam Pittman, hired in 2019, brought Arkansas from the bottom of the SEC to the top 10 team in the country. Pittman, entering his third season, signed an extension through 2026, earning an estimated $6 million a year, led the squad to a 3-0 start this season, and looks to continue their momentum in their first conference game against Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher's $100 million annual program. He's on top of it, producing more revenue than almost anybody in the country. And then finally, Texas and Texas Tech, $25,000 NIL contracts. The Matador Club announcing over 100 football players, including walk-ons, to be signed to one-year $25,000 deals. Many believe the NIL deals were just for star players, evidence that any athlete in college athletics can capitalize. Texas Tech announced they're investing $200 million in football facilities, according to A.D. Kirby Hocutt. Texas Tech vying to be Big 12 premier Texas team, even with three others in-state, and the Big 12 Houston will soon join them. Bottom line, big stuff in college football, not just on the field, but business. How about the pro side? Kali Kazire and, and I have put this together. He's taken the lead on all the research. Thank him again. But you got to think business when you think these events. Steelers and Browns uh, next week. Cleveland hosts Pittsburgh the second week of Thursday Night Football, exclusively streamed by Amazon Prime looking to capitalize on the loyalty that football fans typically have with their teams, hoping that if they don't only have a, fi- a Prime Video membership, costs about 9 bucks a month, they'll eventually subscribe to their team. A big week, week three, obviously important. Packers and Buccaneers, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Rodgers, a four-year, $200 million contract extension, an incredible $150 million guaranteed money back in March, and even at 38 one of the best players in the league, winning the past two MVP awards. Green Bay able to mend their relationship with Rodgers. And then how about Brady, 45 years old, became the oldest player ever to start at quarterback this season and currently the oldest active player in the league. 
potential NFC title preview will be the premier matchup of the afternoon slate and one of the most watched games that isn't in primetime this year. And then, speaking of primetime, Cowboys and the Giants, Monday night football, valuation driven up $8 billion and $6 billion, almost $14 billion in value playing each other, according to Forbes, obviously driven up this past offseason by the $4.65 billion sale of the Broncos to the Walton family. The Monday night football games certainly don't hurt. The 86% increase of the Peyton and Eli ESPN2 commentary compared to last year's Week 1 broadcast. And ESPN looks like they'll continue the momentum both of their broadcasts next week with the Cowboys and the Giants. Thanks, Kali, for that as usual. And obviously when you look at the NFL stuff, you need to look at the business side as well. This is a big interview because it's somebody that's relatively unsung, but he's made more difference to the Baltimore Ravens than almost anybody else off the field. Princeton School of Public Affairs, Yale, Wilmer Cutler and Pickering Law Firm for 31 years. Jerry Jones hired him to do some legal work with the Cowboys, and the rest is basically history. Ravens from 2004 to 2021 reconfigured the front office announced his formal retirement from that position on February 4, 2022. But make no mistake, Dick Cass, the president of the Ravens at the time, has made an indelible mark with Steve Bishotti, M&T Bank Stadium, and others with the Ravens. He has some incredible perspective about all things NFL. Here he is now. For us old guys, uh, when we look back at 50 years or more of the sports business, and we think about how we started in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, my question to you initially is when you're at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and, you know, your track is focused. I'm not sure your track is focused on sports. Uh, no. Did you ever think you were going to end up where you are? No, I really didn't. So, you know, it's like I, I've told a lot of people, it's just being in the right place at the right time. I mean, I really hadn't done much uh, sports work at all. I'd done a little bit, but not very much until Jerry Jones called me and I started working with him on buying the Dallas Cowboys. And that was back in the late 1980s. So until until then, I really hadn't done a lot of sports work at all uh, in my legal profession. And, you know, as a Harvard guy, we usually don't like talking to Yale guys, but we'll make an exception. You know, in in this case, uh, people who graduated Yale, let's say before 1970, uh, three are, are exempt. So, okay. all right. All right, is I that graduated okay? in 71. So I, I yeah. fit in that category. Yeah, no, I know, I know you do. And, and frankly, we, we had some common interests in the sense that we probably, when we were in respective law schools, uh, the idea of spending a lot of time on sports law was something we didn't think about. You probably, cause you're uh, pursuing more traditional pursuits and, and, uh, so, you know, your Yale law school was there ever, and your sports fan, obviously, but ever any yeah. thought of mar- marrying the two? No, I mean, there were never, there was no concept of sports law then. There, there were no courses. There was no discussion of it. Um, it really was, was, a, was a field where there were no experts at the time, really. I mean, there were some people like Paul Tagliabue, who was already practicing sports law at Covington in Washington, right. D.C., uh, because he represented the NFL. But there weren't really very many 
what you would call sports lawyers, and there certainly weren't sports law programs. Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a second, because the way people would get in it, obviously, if you're an agent, a uh, friend, Bob Ruxin, who wrote a book saying, find some guy who, who, who you know, calls you an agent and then go from there. But if you're on the management side, you work at a large law firm who represents a league or a team. Obviously, you mentioned Covington. You mentioned yourself, a Proskauer with David Stern and Gary Bettman and Russ in the NBA and NHL. And that that was basically the track, correct? That was the track, yes. Yeah. And it yeah. wasn't a track I was on at all. Yeah, well, but until Jerry Jones called. So yes. so tell the story of, you know, kind of the Jerry Jones uh, process and then how that led you into more sports stuff. We had done, uh, our firm at, at Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, now Wilmer Hale, had done legal work for Jerry in the oil and gas business. Um, one of my partners introduced me to him and he, at a time when he said he was thinking of buying a football team. Um, and then one day out of the blue and um, start of a long weekend, and uh, I think it was President's Weekend in 1989, he called and said, could you come down to Dallas? I think I'm going to buy the Dallas Cowboys. So I hopped on a plane Friday afternoon. We negotiated a term sheet uh, with the then owner of the Dallas Cowboys, a guy named Bum Bright. And um, I came back to Washington, put a team together, go down and to do due diligence and do a definitive agreement. Um, But by the following Thursday, Jerry had been seen in a restaurant with Jimmy Johnson. The word leaked that he was going to buy the Dallas Cowboys. He then fired Tom Landry. And this is all before we had anything in writing. We had a term sheet, but Mm -hmm. Bumbright didn't sign the term sheet. They had a handshake, and we certainly didn't have a definitive agreement. So as a result, when I called the NFL, they said, who's Jerry Jones and what are you doing? So they sort of then adopted after after the transaction was over, they adopted what they called the Jerry Jones rule, which basically says until you actually own a team, you can't change personnel at the team. So that was my introduction to the NFL. And so obviously after title passed, handshake, papering, term sheet, finally real signatures as real lawyers do. The whole stadium issue, uh, it became, as we all know, the one of the cores of valuation increase. And we both know from respective experiences, that's not that easy to do. Uh, Jerry did some incredible things. Look back on that stadium development experience, which is what is now AT&T Stadium. When he bought the Dallas Cowboys, he also bought Texas Stadium. Right. And um, it was one of the few situations in the NFL at the time where an owner actually controlled the stadium completely. And uh, he tried to figure out how to make money out of it. But at that time, NFL properties, an arm of the NFL, controlled all of the marks and logos of all the NFL teams. So if you wanted to sell a sponsorship, uh, let's say you're Coca-Cola and you want to do an NFL-wide deal or a league deal, or a team deal, you had to go to New York City and negotiate with NFL properties. The teams did not have control of their own marks and logos to do sponsorship deals. So after a couple of years, um, Jerry decided that he would then create sponsorships for Texas Stadium rather than sponsorships for the Dallas Cowboys. And so, for example, Budweiser was the only uh, only beer poured in any NFL stadium and Coca-Cola was the only soft drink poured in any NFL stadium, including Texas Stadium. So Jerry did sponsorships, uh, Texas Stadium sponsorships uh, with Pepsi, 
and with Miller Beer. Um, and he duplicated that with other sponsorship arrangements. Trying to demonstrate that you could make a lot more money if an individual team could negotiate with a sponsor and the league would stick to really selling the NFL shield. So that's how that process started. Uh, we did deals you know, with Nike, Texas Stadium sponsorship and other large companies, American Express did, did a deal with them. And in the end, you know, there was litigation, the league sued us, uh, we counterclaimed. But in the end, we never really litigated. We started talking about a business solution and I think most of the owners readily agreed when they really understood the situation that what Jerry was proposing made sense. So we eventually did a settlement um, and sort of a, came around to what the way the league does it now is really what Jerry proposed back in the mid-1990s and made happen shortly thereafter. Well, and you're a little too humble on this one. And, and you know, your characterization of the facts, obviously, is as you describe them. But when you think about what the bedrock of the NFL has been, which is basically television, ticket away, ticket home, shared, used to be over 85% of the total revenue. Some would call it socialism. doesn't matter what it's called. It was the way that the league differentiated itself as the most valuable sports league ever. Yeah. And you're there shaking its foundation. That's not the way to call it. But uh, your your ability to develop consensus among NFL owners and NFL executives is legendary. Talk a little bit about that experience as you maneuvered that merchandise and licensing sharing agreement you guys have now. Well, on the sponsorship side, what we tried to show the league is we would develop, we actually showed teams that they were already selling individual sponsorships, but the league yeah. wasn't bothering them. We collected, you know, game day magazines from around the league and, uh, printed ads in local newspapers and the like. So a lot of teams were already actually using, selling sponsorships, but not making a lot of money out of it because they really didn't control the stadium in the way they should. And I think from a business standpoint, I think what owners and the league began to appreciate that we're going to need to de need to build a lot of new stadiums. We need to generate more local revenue in order to finance the stadiums and make it financially sensible for teams to build new stadiums. So they loosened up the sponsorship side. And I think that was um, <clears throat> that I think that was an important development. And in the end, not controversial at all. The one thing that everyone agreed, and Jerry did as well, he he never challenged the sharing of national uh, TV right. revenues. And so any sponsorship that has derives its value largely from being on television continued to be. Uh, controlled by the league. So the sidelines were still controlled by the league. And that was something Jerry rarely agreed with. I mean, the, the value of having an apparel product with a logo on the sideline really all relates to TV. A sports drink on the sideline yeah. is really TV revenue. So those were sponsorships that continued to be controlled by the league and sold by the league. But every other sponsorship, um, you know, you see it right now and there's a league sponsor there's a beer that's the official sponsor of the NFL and has the NFL shield and every 32, all the 32 teams now negotiate separate beer sponsorships. And that's true of almost every single category again, except where there's an on field exposure for a logo and that then belongs to the league. Well, obviously a, a big deal, a big explanation and something that is true today and continues to help 
the otherwise incredibly solid foundation of the NFL. All right, so it's early 2002, 2003. I don't know when the first call happens. You're sailing along as a senior uh, respected partner at Wilmer. Uh, you get the call. Uh, how, how, how does the Ravens presidency evolve? I got hired by people to do other possible NFL acquisitions, some of which came to fruition, most of which did not. I got an assignment to um, represent the estate of Jack Kent Cook in selling the Washington Commanders, then the Washington Redskins. That was in 1999. And I, through that, I met some other people. And the Baltimore Ravens came up for sale really in um, late 1999. Um, there was a local businessman. I'd never met him before, Steve Bashotti. But he was using Bank of America as his banker to do to do a possible deal. Bank of America recommended me to him. I met him and we started working with the Modell family to do the Ravens deal. We, we closed that deal in um, spring of 2000. Um, the way the deal was structured, we structured it as a, uh, we would buy 49, not we, Steve would buy 49% in 2000 to give Art Modell money to run the team uh, to pay off some of his debts but we had an option to buy the balance of it four years later. And so in, in uh, April of 2004, Steve bought the balance of the team, and that's when I went over as president. And so was the decision to go from a major partner at a big-time law firm to be the president of an NFL team easy, hard? It was easy for me. I had been I was 58 years old. I had been at the firm for 32, almost 30 uh, 32 years, almost 32. And so I decided, yeah, it was easy. I was something I it was, uh, it was an opportunity. I never thought I would get that opportunity. And I just really enjoyed, always enjoyed working with Steve, still do. Uh, it's been a great partnership with him. And uh, we've had a lot of fun together. You've had a lot of fun together and the city's had a lot of fun with you guys together. So it's 2013 or 14, I guess it was. Uh, 13. We won. 13, we actually, yeah, that's it was, yeah. We won the 13, championship 16. after the 2012 season. Right. So it's early the 2013. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. So it's 34, yeah. 31, and and you're sitting on the sidelines and you're saying, "Boy, this is uh, amazing. Uh, we're going to have a dynasty. We're going to have 19 or 20 of these in a row. We're going to parlay this into long-term deals." Doesn't work out that way, but it must have been an incredible highlight for you. It was great. I mean, we had a lot of success. We, you know, we had. Um, when I became the president, uh, Brian Billick uh, was our head coach. He he brought us the Super Bowl in 2000. Um, he we changed coaches after the 2007 season. Brought in John Harbaugh. His first five years, he made the playoffs every year. In that fifth year, um, we won the Super Bowl. Our quarterback for those five years was Joe Flacco, and as you may recall. Uh, Joe played. We couldn't get a deal done with Joe after heading into the, his fifth and final year under contract, so he took a chance on himself. Played out. Played that year. Won the Super Bowl. Was the Super Bowl MVP, and we made him, as I recall, the highest paid quarterback in the league at the time, or if not the highest, certainly right at the top. So maybe it'll happen again. I mean, you never know. Yeah, there, a, a lot of those facts, and this will this will play out over the fall. So. You know, yeah. we're not going to we're not going to link it to the obvious quarterback situation. No. But, uh, you know, we, we, we this may play out. So it's February 4, 2022. And the retirement decision made a little earlier. 
but it makes the papers and it's a big deal. Uh, Bittersweet? No, I was, I told Steve before the uh, 22 season that I was going to retire after the 22 season because I'd always promised him I'd give him a year's, almost a year's advance notice. And he said, fine, but you got to, you got to help me find a replacement. So I started working on that. Um, Sort of during the during the 2022 season, I made some inquiries and started trying to locate people and identify people. And I had a list. I had been thinking about this for a while, and I had a, a list of people I was thinking about. I hadn't told them I was thinking about them, but I know a lot of people around the league. I've been around the league a long time, and I wanted someone that uh, would fit in well with the kind of structure we have at the Ravens. Um, and, I, you know, the discussions I had with Steve really, he laid down a couple of, of uh, uh, things that he really, uh, really cared about. Number one, he did not want to promote from within. He wanted to bring in someone from the outside. When he appointed me president back in 2004, um, he, he brought me in. I didn't, we kept everyone in place. His deal and my deal was just do your job. And if it works out, you'll you'll stay, you're going to have your job. We're not going to bring in a lot of strange people just to, for the sake of bringing in people that I know. So that's the way we did it. And so when we got to replacing me, he didn't, he really did not. He wanted a new person coming in that was new to the organization. He thought that would, and we both agreed that would be helpful. And the second requirement we had is whoever the person was, he could not, he or she could not bring in an entourage with them. Uh, we wanted the person to come in on his own or her own and uh, give people an opportunity to perform and see how they did. And if he or she wanted to make changes, they could, but not to bring in a whole bunch of new people just for the sake of change. So with those parameters in mind, I, I went looking and we we landed an ideal candidate. And I still think my legacy for the Ravens will be that I brought in a great new president. Well, that's one of your legacies. You got a lot of legacies. And the interesting thing about the reconfiguration from my perspective of of your role let's say broadly defined knowing folks like mark donovan who's been a very successful president of the chiefs and tom garfinkel uh, down here in florida there are a lot of other presidents who have the opportunity to do x's and o's and make football decisions Uh, many of them are no longer around i think the key may have been the opportunity to run the team as a business and to look the owner in the eye and say I got your business back. You've got, uh, I'll oversee and help you with the football operations, but I've got your business back. Is that, is, is that, was that a key to one of your successes? And is that the future of a quote unquote president? You know, the team president really is not, you've got the way our structure works. There's three of us who report directly to the owner, uh, the head coach, the general manager, and the president. And we all work very closely together and we all have our areas of expertise and they mingle from time to time and they, inter- they interact. I was always in the draft room on draft day and I sat in on draft meetings and we have an annual meeting with Steve after the season's over to talk about how the season went, talk about our own free agents who are guys who are becoming free agents and free agents uh, from other teams and how we're going to, whom, whom we might target, whom we might offer contracts to and that sort of thing. We talk about the money. But I, my role was really principally on the business side um, with dotted lines, and I would, would share in it, but it really 
the general manager in our situation was Ozzie Newsom for almost the yeah. whole time I was there. Now Eric DaCosta. And the general manager at the Ravens has a say over the over the draft, has a say over signing free agents. Head coach does the football side. C- close cooperation, uh, good partnership, but it's a partnership where each partner has their own area of expertise, and you try not to interfere with with what's going on with someone else and just try to help out. But there are lots of issues like when you're dealing with COVID where there's a lot of interaction. Uh, when you're dealing with things like team travel, um, it's just it, how we expand. the. When you talk about, you know, when I first came on board in 2004, no team had analysts. Since then, every team has analysts, and we were one of the early teams to get to that. So it's a it's a financial decision you're making, um, but it's also, you know, it's a football. There's football analysts, there's scouting analysts, and business analysts. And um, so it's – you sort of work together on a lot of those things. But in the end, my job was on the business side, uh, not on the football side. A couple more, and, and this is a kind of a broad question too. Uh, your first experience day-to-day – um, 20, 2004, it's 18, 19 years ago. The NFL has changed a bit, a lot more zeros uh, on the dollar sign valuation side. Uh, right. what, what are the biggest changes you've seen from then to now? Talk a little bit about gaming, new media, international, all of that stuff. Give me your perspective. Well, I think that, that a couple of perspectives. One, I go back to when Jerry first got into the league in the late 1980s. The league itself was very unsophisticated from a business standpoint, had a very uh, small office at Park Avenue. And the commissioner then, Pete Roselle, did not really control even the labor negotiations with the union, nor did he really control the business side uh, because that you had the management council. The owners had much more say over that than the commissioner did in many ways. Um, and the on the business side, he had this NFL properties, which operated somewhat independently. So the finance and even the finance function at the league office was was not particularly sophisticated. And Paul Tagliabue really changed all of that. He took control of labor negotiations. He also took control of the business operations um, and started hiring a lot of people, uh, very good people who really knew how to run their respective shops uh, and took the league, I think, to a whole different level. Then they built NFL Network, which has added hundreds of more people. I mean, the league now is a very sophisticated business operation. It certainly was not that in the late teen, uh, in the late 1980s. And all of that really changed uh, with Paul Tagliabue, and now has developed even more with, under Roger. At the team level, you know, I go back, and when we started in 2004, I think we had roughly 92 full-time employees, not counting the players. We're now at about probably 280 full-time employees, roughly. And that's not uncommon around the league. I mean, everything has gotten so much more, so different. When, when I came on board in 2004, we had one half of a person doing our website. And that was sort of what other teams did as well. We've now in what we call our digital media group, we've got well over 20 people and we hire a lot of outsiders, contractors also to do work for us, you know, to create content for our app, our website, all the digital, the social media platforms, which are keep exploding. Um, and so that's just entirely new. 
Um, the sales group has grown dramatically. The marketing group has grown dramatically. Ticketing uh, has has also grown. Um, every every department has had to grow to meet the new needs. What in many cities like Baltimore, the local newspaper has really uh, has a much reduced circulation. And so, if you want to reach your fans, you really have to create your own content in many many situations. Local television shows, you know, the news and local news really has a very diminished sports program, a couple of minutes on the 11 o'clock news. So to reach your fans on TV and, in, and on video, you really have to create your own content. So everything in that regard has changed just dramatically. Coaching staffs have probably tripled in size, roughly. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not too much. Scouting departments have grown dramatically. Um, it's just a very, very different environment. Then you need to grow IT to support all that. You need to grow your HR department to support everyone in the building. Our food operation has changed dramatically over the years. Our, our facilities have changed. Um, everyone, you know, we built, when Steve became controlling owner, we had the, the Ravens had been practicing out of an old Baltimore Colts facility. And we then built with his money, we built a, a new facility, moved in there in, in 2004 at a cost of about $40 million. We since uh, invested over $70 million in expanding it and renovating it to create really what is, I think, a state-of-the-art facility. But we still, and we've got beautiful grass fields, which require, I mean, we, we spend a lot of money making sure our facilities are up-to-date and new and buy all the latest technology and IT equipment and you need to really run a football team. Stadium the same way. I mean, in our stadium, and it's not uncommon in others, uh, our stadium was built for $220 million. We opened that stadium in 1998. Since then, we have invested about $230, $240 million in, in the stadium of our own money. We put just between seven, 2017 and 19, a two and a half year period, we invested 120 million in the stadium. And we're now having in the planning stages, a, a additional renovations to keep our stadium first class and, and fresh. And I think that's just a continuing battle. We're gonna to continue to spend money on the stadium. You know, as, as well as anybody that the battle today is to get your fans, the television viewing experience is so good you have to make the stadium experience a good one or fans will not come. And uh, and if the fans don't come, you don't have a good home field advantage and then you don't win. And if you're not winning, nothing works. So um, it's all, it all comes together in that sense. So we spend a lot of money in our stadium. We spend a lot of money in our facilities. And because of the way the, the NFL operates, because of revenue sharing and because of the salary cap, and because national revenues keep growing much, much faster than local revenues generally, and because all that national revenue is shared, every team in the league and the NFL has enough money to spend to the salary cap. So every team uh, is should be competitive. And if you're not competitive, it's because you're, you're really not making the right decisions on the football side. DeCast gives us some real perspective, as we know. Let's look at gaming, the Sports Gaming Minute. A better turned a $7.16 bet into more than two hundred fifty-two grand on Saturday after hitting a college football parlay. Payout could have been more than a million. The unidentified gambler placed the wager 
on FanDuel, selecting 25 college football games. Parlay had a mixture of spreads, totals, and monthly line picks. First 23 of the parlay hit. Final two legs, Texas A&M, minus 6.5 over Miami and Michigan State. Washington, over 56.5, but the better, identified on Twitter as at Doritos, posted a screenshot showing they cashed out before the final two legs for 252 grand. Had the better held on to the end? A payout of 1.0 million. Listen, the bottom line is gambling certainly generating significant interest, and this kind of story continues to help tell it and spike the interest even more. Sports Tech Minute. Miami Marlins hosting partnership event with Zigazoo as the team hopes to use video-based social media apps to attract a younger audience. They'll be at Lone Depot Park, Zigazoo Day, NBA app backed by NBA, the kids' social media app, sorry, backed by the NBA and backed also by Serena Williams. Zigazoo, a TikTok-like video sharing app geared toward kids under 12, more than a million users prompting given children's brands vetted by Zigazoo. And as part of the partnership with the Marlins, a singing contest will be hosted on the app, which the award the winner and their parent with tickets to the September 25 game and chance for the young fan to sing Take Me Out with the, uh, 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 to the ball game during the seventh inning stretch. Liberty City Ventures led Zigazoo's $17 million Series A funding in June. Other investors include Serena Ventures, as we said, the NBA, Dapper Labs, One Football, Animoca Brand, and others. The social networking app also includes NFTs and Web3 education programs for children. Good Sports 5 concludes our podcast. PayPal threatens to leave their partnership with the Suns and their current owner if he doesn't step away permanently. In light of the findings of the NBA investigation, they wouldn't renew the sponsorship should Robert Sarver remain involved with the Suns organization after serving his suspension, the pressure mounts. The Aces beat the Connecticut Suns to win the first WNBA championship for the city. Obviously a big deal, more philanthropy, more connections back to women's sports as well. SECU scores an $11 million naming rights partnership with University of Maryland Athletics, including a $2.5 million gift to support programs such as athletic sponsorships, career development programs, and mental health programs. Good for them. Dick's Sporting Goods partners with DoorDash to expand the retailer's same-day delivery service. They're also trying to make it a bigger deal beyond food and grocery to extend to a wider base, and sports and philanthropy will, of course, follow. And then sports and entertainment partnership consultant turned influencer Wera Syed makes waves as the plug to a number of high-profile athletes and NBA teams. Obviously, a big deal for the social media maven, but a big deal for the sports and entertainment industry and philanthropy as well. We'd like to thank Callie Kazire for helping us put that together, Nick Nielsen for the show as well, all those who helped produce it, and all of you who watched and listened and join us as we go inside 
the $1.3 trillion business of sports. I'm the sports professor, Rick Haro. Speak with you next time. Get ready for the debut of the reissue of the Sport Business Handbook. We'll talk about that and its successes next week. Sports professor Rick Haro, speak with you soon.